0: So we're beginning this brand new series. We're talking about uh, uh, hopes and fears, and uh, it kind of is from... The song, A Little Town of Bethlehem, there's a verse in that song where uh, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, and we got talking, uh, Pastor Jeff and I, about hopes and fears, and what does it mean that they're met by Jesus, and so what is it about hopes and fears, and yet it seems like that's where we are in our world, that we live, we're designed to live a life of hope, but it's hard to move past our fears and our frustrations, and uh, so so we talked about that while we're wide awake in the middle of the night, worrying about relationships, and worrying about money, and worrying about the future, and what presents to buy, and the news in our world, and the news in our world is that there are homes that are being lost to fires, there is drug addiction is rampant, there is political divisions, and there's even UPS porch py- pirates, you know what I mean, Like, like you can't even have a package delivered anymore and not have it stolen off your front porch. It's just become that kind of world, right? However, what I would suggest is that our world isn't much different. It just may seem that it's different because our world has always been broken. As a matter of fact, at the time of Jesus' birth, and I mentioned this, uh, I think, last week. uh, No, I wasn't here last week. Oh all right, so this is the first time you're hearing it. Uh, at the time of Jesus' birth, Rome had taken the region captive and the Jewish people were under occupation and the, the Romans uh, ruled strictly and harshly. As a matter of fact, they, uh, as the kingdom was growing uh, as the, as the Empire was growing in Rome, there was more money was required and so they taxed and taxed and taxed and the taxes constantly increased so much so that they were causing many people to go into debt just to pay your taxes and then they would have their land taken from them, eventually rendering them utterly impoverished. At the same time, there were wars going on. There were rumors of wars as well. And so this area for generations was in constant strife, and the people... The Jewish people were longing for a Messiah who was going to come and rescue them. Now, this is the world that Jesus entered on that very first Christmas. A broken world, I would suggest, not much different than the world today. And so the Christmas story speaks to moments like this in history. Because moments like this are not very different. So as I mentioned, O Little Town of Bethlehem was written in the 1860s. The United States was recovering from, uh, from a civil war. And there was still much hostility within the country. And a pastor from Philadelphia, there you go, wrote, a oh, little town of Bethlehem, and in the words, he says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in the tonight. So why is there such a similarity across time and across history, whether it's the first century, the 19th century, or the 21st century, is that our world is a broken place and we are broken people. So fear is this universal emotion. And I would suggest that fear entered the world in, in, uh, in, at the beginning of humanity's existence. So I love, and I've told you this before, I love Genesis. I love the first 11 chapters of Genesis. One of my favorite parts of the Bible because there are so many things in there that talk about the human condition and how humanity has gotten into the condition and the place that we are at. And so this is the case for fear as well. If you were to read uh, Genesis chapter three, it says this. It says, the, the, the writer of Genesis tells us that fear began in the garden. Adam, who's, who's represented as the first man in Genesis, after humanity had broken away from God and had chosen to go their own way, it says that God is walking in the garden and he's looking for humanity, he's looking for Adam and Eve. And when, he, when God finds Adam, Adam says, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. And why? Because I was afraid. And fear entered our existence. And so, you see, our world is always broken, and brokenness doesn't take a day off. Brokenness doesn't even take a season off for the holidays, although we'd like to believe that, right? We'd like to think at Christmas time things are better for people, but hospitals don't close on Christmas. And so, people are still sick, and people will still be injured. Emergency rooms will have to be staffed. Police departments will be staffed because there are bad things and bad operators that still exist. Funeral homes will still have funerals because people still die at Christmas time. Families still fight. Relationships are still broken because fear is always present in a broken world. So, fear is a legitimate emotion, but it doesn't need to control us. And so, a life mainly guided by fear is one that's small, it's one that is shrunken, and it becomes a substitute for what could be. Now, there's a purpose to fear. Fear is so that we act, uh, right? You've heard the saying deer in headlights. Why do we have a saying like deer in headlights? Because when deer are fearful, what do they do? They freeze, right? And what happens to them next? They get hit by a car, right? That's what happens next, right? So fear is not meant to Make us motionless. The purpose of fear is actually to motivate us, motivate us toward action, right? Either to avoidance, that's still action, or it's preparation for something, or it's a new level of focus or concentration, but it doesn't need to control us. So when we have risky behavior, risky behavior leads to fear, and fear can be conquered then, right, through our courage through the next step. So courage can listen to fear, but don't, uh, but doesn't misunderstand it as nature's ultimate stop sign. So just because we're afraid doesn't mean we stop, doesn't mean we freeze. Now, so fear isn't always our enemy. It's simply something to be overcome. It can be a stimulus to act properly. It can guide us to adapt It can guide us to act well. It always signals the unknown, and the unknown is where the amazing can be found. So fear, as an example of fear, is, is if you're driving down the highway and someone changes lanes quickly in front of you, and you have to suddenly step on your brake and swerve around them or something like that, what does it cause you to do? There's some fear. There's a sudden reaction. Your heart's beating quickly. And then what happens? All of a sudden, you have both hands on the wheel. Right? Fear has caused you to act, right to respond, to be more judicious, to be more careful. And so, so fear has a purpose. So Christmas is not about the absence of fear. We're not trying to remove fear from our lives. Christmas is about the presence of a Savior born in a manger in the midst of fear. So Christmas says that there is a hope that can conquer fear. Christmas says that hope is in the face of fear, and it won't allow fear to control us. That there is a living hope, a perfect love that can dwell inside of you and I, and it will cast aside all fears. A decision to live from love, not from fear. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke does this incredible job of, of connecting fear and the Christmas story. And so we're going to look at at some things from Luke over the next few weeks all the way through December 30th, actually. Right? Is that a Sunday? I think the 30th. Yeah, all the way through December 30th. So about the idea of names, because names are important in Luke's gospel. Uh, Today's story centers around two characters from the Christmas story, Zachariah and Elizabeth, and their names are very important to the story. Now, naming in ancient times was important, uh, less important today. Uh, My full name, my full first name is Richard. I was named Richard because my father had a a brother named Richard, and he liked his brother, and so he wanted to name me Richard. Now, my mom agreed to that name because she used to watch a show called I Love Lucy. (laughs) And I Love Lucy had a little Ricky. So she said, we can name him Richard if I can call him Ricky. And so I grew up being Richard, but called Ricky. Isn't that sweet? Now, the story continues in that Pastor Jeff got involved in the story because when I came to Hope, uh, when I was 40 years old back in 2006, he said, I will not have an associate pastor named Ricky. And so he said, we're going to call you Rick. Rick. And so now you'll know who has known me longest because there are people in my life who call me Ricky. Kevin Livengood back there in the red shirt has known me since college. And so Kevin calls me Ricky. Uh, My wife calls me Ricky. Uh, Dave Evans calls me Ricky. Uh, A lot of people call me Rick here. You're allowed to call me whatever you want. Just don't call me Richard because it just doesn't fit. Uh, But you see how that is, that naming today it doesn't always have the impact that naming had in the first century. In Hebrew thought, the name represented your identity, not simply a convenient way to differentiate you from somebody else by calling out your name on the playground. The Israelites believed that names defined us, so names given at birth had meaning. And to some extent, names were given as a way to give prophecy. See, if you hear something over and over again, you tend to believe it. In a sense, then, naming someone was culture making because you would be creating someone's essence. You'd be, the Hebrews believed you were connecting to their soul. And so in Hebrew culture, It was thought that our names were a result of a partnership between our effort as parents and even God. So when naming, we were creating. Now, again, see, I love Genesis. When we go back to Genesis, we find that God named things as he created. It says in Genesis chapter 1 that God said, let there be light. He named it light and it existed. Just the naming of something in God's, God can create just by naming things. Then we find out that later, after God created Adam, that he invited Adam to be a part of creation when Adam got to do what? Got to name the animals. And so, naming became part of the creative process. And so, the Hebrew thought was that when you were naming your children, when you were naming something, you were part of the creative process, part of what God was doing. And that you were prophesying into this person's life. Now, give give you an example of this. Uh, So, there is in the Old Testament, there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all right? And Jacob, when he was born, was holding on to his twin brother's heel. And so he was named, his parents named him, his father named him heel grabber. That's what Jacob means. Jacob means heel grabber. Now, that has another meaning. It was an, it was an idiom, it was a, a slang for someone who deceives. So if you were someone and you were known as being very deceptive, you go, well, he's a heel grabber. So imagine Jacob growing up, every time he was called in from outside from playing, his mom or dad said, hey, heel grabber, come inside. Hey, you, heel grabber, come inside. Hey, you, deceiver, come inside. What kind of prophecy are they speaking into Jacob's life? Right? Okay. See how naming is important, okay? In Hebrew culture names are not just convenient ways for us to differentiate objects. names are responsible for the differences in how things are on earth. So naming someone was like writing the story about them it was about it was about um, uh, it was about what their life's mission could become. One, um, one rabbi had this to say, ancient rabbi had this to say. He said, one of the most powerful questions that will be asked in the afterlife is, what is your name and did you live up to it? So naming was incredibly important. Names and the meaning of them. All right, so now that we know that, let's read Luke chapter 1. It's up on the screen. During the rule of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest assigned service in the regiment of Abijah. His name was Zechariah. His wife was descended from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. You guys are dying. Together... They lived honorably before God, careful in keeping to the ways of the commandments and enjoying a clear conscience before God. But, whenever there's a but, someone once said that everything else doesn't matter, it's what's coming next. But they were childless because Elizabeth could never conceive. And now they were quite old. So a couple things about these folks. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth come from a Jewish priestly heritage. A priest did not have to marry a woman from a priestly family, but if he did, it was a twofold honor. So we find out that Zechariah and Elizabeth are both from this priestly line. So that is uh, like a mark in their favor, in a sense. We also know that our, we're finding remembered, very important name. The Lord has remembered. And Elizabeth means, my God is an oath. Not my God takes oaths. Not my God honors oaths. My God is an oath. So in other words, my God absolutely faithful. The Lord has remembered God absolutely faithful. And Luke tells us that they are righteous in God's eyes. In other words, that their, their hearts are good with God. And they obeyed all the commandments and regulations, so outwardly they're good with God. So they're good with God, inwardly and outwardly. All right, here is this priestly family with these honorable names that have these positive attributes of God, that God remembers, that God is absolutely faithful, and here they are uh, living this faith-filled life. It embodied their names and everything about them, but they were childless. They were barren. They had no kids. In a world where children were a sign of God's blessing, where children were a sign of a secure future, as well as extending your family name, Zach and Liz were childless. They were void. They were empty. They had seemingly no future. There was a black mark on their family and on their future. And then Luke tells us that they were quite old, likely over 60. That's not really, uh, it's a new, this, this is the first century, all right, remember that. Luke tells his reader, the reason he tells us that they're quite old is Luke's letting us know that things are not going to change for them. Their story's already been written. And so I want you to imagine this couple who come from this priestly line, who have these names that are a reminder of God, living this barren life. Imagine every day praying for something and not seeing God answer. Imagine that every time they hear their names, every time someone says their name, every time they say each other's name, they are reminded that God is faithful, that God remembers, that God is an oath, except it feels like he isn't. Decades? And had they finally reached a time where they'd stop praying, stop asking God for something that God was not willing to give. And so Zechariah could have relieved himself of this curse by divorcing Elizabeth. In first century culture, barrenness was a commonly accepted grounds for divorce. And so Zechariah could have gotten rid of her. He could have married a younger woman. He could have had children by this new wife and gotten that damnable curse off his back. That was the route many other men would have taken or could have taken. But not Zechariah. It says instead that he prayed. And he lived with this tension of hope and fear in this world. Where is God in all of this? I've been praying and I'm not sure God is listening. And if God is listening, why is it like this? So now the story goes on. That was our background to... Zechariah and Elizabeth, and up on the screen in verse 8 it says, "...it so happened that as Zechariah was carrying out his priestly duties before God, working the shift assigned to his regiment, it came his one turn in life to enter the sanctuary of God and burn incense." The congregation was gathered and praying outside the temple at the hour of the incense burning. So Zechariah is uh, serving in the temple. There's about eighteen thousand to twenty thousand priests who would serve at this time. Oh, okay, and so he uh, uh, he had literally won the priestly lottery. All right, the privilege to enter into. The temple to burn incense. It would only be happen once in your whole lifetime. You wouldn't ever do it more than once. And so here's this once in a lifetime moment for Zechariah. He's going in. He's going to lay some coals, on, uh, lay some incense onto the coals, and it's going to send smoke up into the sky. And the smoke from the burning incense would rise up through the temple, and it was to be a symbol of the prayers being lifted up to God. And so the people would be gathered for this experience. They would be there just to watch this, to witness it, and they would be praying while Zechariah was in the temple and watching the smoke rise so that they could imagine that their prayers were being lifted up to heaven. And they would continue to pray until the priest returned from the temple area. So while this thing, this once-in-a-lifetime moment, Luke goes on and says, unannounced, I don't know how you would have announced it, but unannounced, an angel of God appeared just to the right of the altar of incense. Zachariah was paralyzed in fear. See, an angel shows up and Zach is afraid. Why? Because an angel showed up. You see, this is the reality. When we read the Bible, sometimes we think, oh, it's just filled with angel stories. It's really not as common as you would think. And if you Google it, someone will tell you how many times, because that's what I did. All right? I wanted to see how many times are angels mentioned in the Bible. So you Google, how many times are angels mentioned in the Bible? See, when I went to seminary, that didn't exist. You actually had to count those puppies. Now you just Google it. So sure enough, it turns out 65 times in the Old Testament and 18 times in the New Testament. Now that does seem like a lot, but when you recognize that that's written over centuries, centuries of time, it's not often that angels show up. So why is Zachariah scared? Because an angel showed up. He's just going through the routine. He's there doing. I love how the Message version says uh, he's there for his shift all right? He's just doing his deal, right? He's doing what he's supposed to do. He's dropping off the incense and prayers are supposed to be going up to heaven. And I imagine at this point, he's thinking, I'm in my 60s. My prayers aren't going up to heaven. I'm not sure where they're going because I've been praying for a child and it just isn't happening. So where are you, God? Because I don't see it. Now, we're going to see in the next couple of weeks that every story next week and Christmas Eve and the 30th, an angel always shows up. Now, I just got done telling you that angels don't happen a lot and you don't see them and they don't. But they seem to happen a lot in the Christmas story. I wonder why. This is a big deal. God chooses to come down from heaven as a human being. It's a big deal. So you bring angels when you're doing that. So we left Zechariah, he's in the temple, the angel is standing there and he is scared and it says up on the screen, but the angel reassured him, don't fear Zechariah, he uses his name, don't fear Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Elizabeth, he uses her name, Elizabeth, your wife will bear a son by you. You are to name him John. You really want to know what John means, don't you? You're going to leap like a gazelle for joy. Zachariah is not as old as we think. And not only you, many will delight in his birth. He'll achieve a great stature with God. The angel used his name. He said this, he said, don't fear the Lord has remembered. Remember, that's what Zechariah means. Don't fear the Lord has remembered. Your prayer has been heard. Elizabeth, my God is an oath, faithful. Elizabeth, faithful. Your wife will bear a son. Just as the incense is rising up into the sky, Zechariah, know that your prayer has been heard. God's heard you. Not just any prayer, God has heard the prayer that you've been praying your whole life, and you will have a son, and you are to name him John. God has been gracious. God has been gracious. If you're a parent, do you remember when you heard, when you found out you were going to have a baby? I mean, maybe the stick got a plus sign. Or maybe the ultrasound showed that little peanut and you couldn't believe it really was there, but the doctor swears that's what it is, right? There was excitement, there was joy, there was a little bit of anxiety. And what if you had, you may be hearing you have had trouble conceiving even more excitement, even more joy, even more anxiety? What if you lived in the first century and you were decades past childbearing years and you believed you was displeased with you or your spouse and everyone in your culture believed the same thing? Can you imagine the excitement when the angel tells you you will have a son? God has been gracious. Excitement and maybe even some disbelief for Zechariah. Verse 18 says, I don't think it's up on the screen now, it's just here. Zechariah said to the angel, Do you expect me to believe this? I'm an old man and my wife is an old woman. He's being honest, she's not there. See, what Zechariah probably feared was happening in his life is that God was offering condemnation and punishment, and now an angel shows up. But what he received was affirmation and grace. And an answer to a prayer that he had likely long ago stopped praying. Too good to be true. Too many times he's been told God had abandoned him, that you're being punished that Elizabeth is being punished. Zach divorce her and move on. And so he says to the angel, this is beyond God's ability to make happen. This is too good to be true. So the story goes on, you'll have to read it yourself, in that the angel then silences Zachariah and is... He's unable to speak. Whether he loses his voice or is mute, we we don't know the exact details. Except that he isn't able to communicate until after John is born. Gives Zacharias some time to reflect, I would think. And then in verse 23 it says, "When the course of his priestly assignment was completed, he went back home." Is that a killer? He leaves the angel, goes out. He can't just go home. He's got to finish his duty. He's got to finish his tour. And then it says, it wasn't long before his wife, Elizabeth, God is faithful, conceived. So here are my thoughts. As we're journeying, journeying through this life, there becomes times, difficult seasons. Sometimes you may be in one right now. And as you look forward, trying to look past Christmas, all you can see are the ways God is not going to provide. And it can be easy to lose hope. And you could think, my situation is impossible. My spouse will never change. Our marriage is beyond repair. We will never get out of debt. Our kid is headed down a horrible path, and there is no hope. I will never be well again. This job will never improve. I or we will never recover from fill in the blank. My friend, my brother, never have a faith in Jesus. And you may be wondering, where is God in all of this? I've done everything right, or maybe you haven't either. And the circumstances seem overwhelming. And for those of you who are in that spot, I want you to hear these names again. The Lord has remembered. My God is an oath, absolutely faithful one. And God has been gracious. For with God, nothing is impossible. And Christmas tells us that the hopes and fears of all the years are met in Jesus. Tonight. Maybe you've heard or you've thought it's too late. This is the story of my life. It's been written. There's no reason for God to show up now. The Lord has remembered my God is an oath, absolutely faithful one. God has been gracious. Believe be faithful, keep on keeping on, because the hopes and fears of all the years are met in Jesus. See, Christmas is not about the absence of things that cause pain and cause fear. Christmas is about the presence of a Savior born in the manger in the midst of that circumstance. Christmas says that hope can conquer all of our fears. A living hope that casts aside all fear. So the band's going to come up. They're going to lead us in a song. And uh, I want us to pray before they lead us into that song. It's, um, let's just pray. Why don't you stand with me? And so, God, here in this room, there are men and women who are living in real life, real circumstances, the world that we live in today. A world that can easily cause us to be caught in fear, to be paralyzed by it, to react to it. God, that the circumstances in life can be overwhelming. But God, we want to trust and believe that the prayers that we have prayed to you are heard. And that when we question, where are you, God? God, help us to imagine our prayers being lifted up to you. That when we believe that our story has already been written and it is too late, it's too far gone. God, help us to know the Lord has remembered. That God, you are absolutely faithful and that, God, you are gracious. And, God, don't let us be captivated by fear, but, God, help us to be captivated by your love, a love so great that you would choose to send Jesus into the midst of every fear so that, God, you would bring hope into our world, hope into our lives, hope into existence. So I pray that that would be our prayer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to worship this morning.